lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Happy that you're here, and I hope you have some friends who are in need of healing from some kind of life loss. Uh, this evening is going to be wonderful. I have a special guest with me, Reverend Ariana Platten. She is the minister at the Unity Spiritual Center in the Rockies here in Colorado Springs. Ariana and I have been best friends for a long time, for nine years uh, since I came here. And uh, we, at one time, uh, were sort of the leaders of the uh, liberal Colorado Springs Clergy Association, which liberaled out, I think we can say, and doesn't really exist anymore, but we... We met each other and we talk a lot and we share our hopes and dreams and expectations and feelings and successes and we, we she's my friend. And so, uh, Ariana, I'm delighted that you're here with us and my listeners soon will be delighted that you're here with us. Welcome. Thank you, Mel. So... Before I met you, uh, I didn't know what unity was. I had no idea. I knew what Christianity was. I know what Islam is and Buddhism, and uh, but I didn't know anything. Um, and I've been scouring your website. And by the way, my my friends, you should know that. Ariana has been kind enough to invite me to preach in her church several times during the last few years, and they rock. They just plain rock. Uh, the music is wonderful. The spirit is, is, is so encompassing and supportive, and you can tell that God is in the church. So, Ari, would you start by perhaps giving us an introduction, what exactly is unity and how is it different than Christianity or Judaism? Well, that's, that's a good question. I guess I have to preface, Mel, by saying that um, unity is non-dogmatic, which means that I think for everybody who participates in unity, it's slightly different. There are some certain uh, very simple things that we all agree to, uh, but there are a lot of places that, that we, we feel differently. So one has to be very careful speaking on behalf of unity because it covers a lot of different ideas. Um, but it's, there are a couple of things that are important to know. First of all, unity was founded in 1889. It was founded here in the United States. It is a new religious movement in that 
Um, I was speaking to an academic today who said anything that's less than 500 years old falls into the category of new mm. religious movements. So we're just, you know, uh, about 125, 126 years old. And we were founded here by a very interesting couple, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, neither of whom ever expected to, to bring about a religious movement. Um, really, the kind of short and skinny of it is that, that Myrtle Fillmore was very sick. She was a sickly child. She grew up to have tuberculosis and was expected to die by the time she was 40. And uh, she used the power of prayer to heal herself, lived to be well into her 80s. And her husband, who um, was, not, was, was really not a very religious person, when this all started, um, was one of those kind of skeptical people that says, if it works for you, it ought to work for me. And so he used many of the same techniques to, to do personal healing work for himself, and, um, and part of that included combating a, uh, a leg that was short that, uh, due to an accident when he was a child. Um, so he was very a, a big student of regeneration and a, a very prolific writer, wrote all kinds of things, and one of his great works was that he took, he took the Bible and over the course of 30 years looked at it through the eyes of allegory and said, what if there's something deeper here? What if it's not just the surface story? What if there is something that is kind of hidden in this book that is a, a deeper pattern or a, or a deeper idea? And over 30 years, he spent studying every word, every symbol, every all of the patterns that repeated, and wrote the Metaphysical Bible Dic- Dictionary, uh, which r- really is kind of a guide for unity. It allows us to look at one might, uh, what, what one might think of as traditional Christianity through an entirely different lens, that being a metaphysical lens and invites us to consider life from a very different state than you might find in a traditional Christian environment. So when they started this, when they started working together, Myrtle and Charles, they were getting better and people were paying attention and noticing, and they didn't want to start a church. They had their meetings for people and taught people what they'd learned on a different day or night than Sunday because they didn't want to take anybody away from their regular church. And they believed that what they were teaching was available to anyone and they, anybody could participate. And so, over, unfortunately, over time, the way, the way that kind of thing develops is that people say, no, 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 we want to be there. We want to do this on Sunday. This is what you should do. So, ultimately, by the, kind of by the coercion of the, of the people who were involved, Unity became a movement, and we still don't don't really use that word church so much as we're a movement. Um, we are better than 800 strong here in the United States with several hundred ministries outside of the United States as well, and we are based in, uh, we have Unity Village, which is kind of home base, if you will, um, is based in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, at Unity Village, and um, so it's a it's a really interesting, unique path. There are people in unity who would very clearly define themselves and self-identify as Christian, and then there are people who 
would not use that word, not to say that they don't follow the teachings of Christ or are not interested in biblical teachings, but they don't see themselves as traditional Christian and uh, don't see the teachings as traditionally Christian. And there are people who attend your services whom I know from my congregation who visit me on Saturday, Shabbat, and then visit you on Sunday, and they tell me that while it's two different kinds of experiences, they they know that God is around uh, in both places. And I think that's one of the one of the really sweet things about unity is that um, that it was actually founded with the intention that people might belong to other faiths and still be interested in in the teachings of unity. And that those two things don't have to be in conflict. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Mel, that you and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, we met through the, the Pikes Peak Interreligious Clergy Alliance, and we, we both have uh, that interest in communication across religious lines. And so this particular faith persuasion works really well for me because I am so committed to the concept that people from all different faiths have something to learn from one another and reasons to gather and study together, and that really embodies a lot of how unity was founded. I understand and I agree with you. I want to get to, um, since you talked about um, Christianity, you've got on your website here that we regard Jesus as the great example rather than the great exception. What does that mean? That means that a lot of of mainstream Christianity or more evangelical Christianity see Jesus as the only Son of God, and that is not the way that unity understands Jesus. We understand that Jesus was a man, that he, he was a man who went through a transformative experience that took him into his Christ itself, um, and that his, his great work was to show us how to transform ourselves, how to become capable of so many things that, that we are able to do for each other and if, we're, if we truly live that kind of dedicated life. So we see him as a way-shower as opposed to uh, an exception to the rule that really our great, our great work in life is to learn from the lessons that are taught through, you know, through, through all the teachings of Jesus and to figure out how do we really embody those teachings? So how do we live with a great level of love and compassion that he exercised and at the same time the great level of determination? How do we really explore the concepts of healing and forgiveness and, and uh, you know, all of those things that are, are so... Uh, kind of familiar to the Christ teachings. I want to get back to healing and forgiveness um, in a few minutes, but because we have only a minute left till the first break, uh, I'm looking at your five basic unity principles, and you say there is only one presence and one power in our lives, and it is good. This presence is often called God. Now, mm-hmm. after, the, after the break, I want to ask you about the opposite of good, whatever you call that, because bad things happen to people. You know that, and I know that. 
and we're all good people, and yeah, and we all believe in, you know, God is the presence that makes for good in 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 humankind and and in us, and so I want to uh, go a little, little bit deeper after the break. We will be back with Reverend Ariana Platten in just a moment. makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, my friends. I'm here with my good friend, Reverend Ariana Platten, who is the minister at the Unity of the Rockies Church. And uh, before the break, I read something on the uh, website, on her website, that says, there is only one presence and one power in our lives, and it is good. And we were talking about uh, a mutual friend whose son, uh, committed suicide this past week, and in fact, there have been three or four high school kids who have taken their lives, and and Ari, tell them what you told me. Uh, I was just uh, sharing that I spoke with, I do a lot of interfaith dialogue, and I was speaking with um, someone from another church here who said that their minister this week had, from the pulpit, said to the community, Stop scaring your children. Stop 
scaring your children. You're busy telling them how horrible the world is, that, you know, the political scene is such a problem, the police aren't safe, it, you know, prices are not right, medical care isn't available, whatever the, the particular rhetoric is, but you're telling your kids things that make them believe there's no, there's no hope, there's nothing forward looking for them. And it's important, I think it's incredibly insightful and incredibly important that we understand what our children are hearing from us and that it's affecting them. And it's not, it's not just the difficulty of being a teen that's causing this kind of wave of suicide. There's, there are really good reasons for children not to believe there's something to look forward to. And part of the problem is that families don't have dinner together like we used to. And so we right. don't get the chance to discuss those kinds of things. We discuss uh, who's going to be the next president of the United States, which doesn't make anybody happy and brings joy to not a lot of people. But we don't really, as you say, talk about hope. We talk about fears. And so I guess you're right. You know, when, when kids... Uh, hear that there's so much to be afraid of and then a crisis comes in their lives, a suicide becomes an option. So let me ask you a question. Um, does Unity believe in like Christianity and some, some Jews that we were all taught this that there's a, a heaven and a hell and after you when you die, if you're a good person, you go up to heaven, and if you're not a good person, you go down to hell. What do you believe? Well, again, about I want to preface what I'm saying with the fact that that one of the great qualities that I appreciate so much about unity is that there there is room for for people who believe lots of different things. We're studying together, we're considering together, we're asking each other questions and and learning together. But no one is told you must believe this or you must believe that. That said, if you go back to the original teachings of Charles Fillmore, um, who was, he and his wife are the, the uh, couple who founded the Unity, Minute, uh, Unity Movement in 1889, their teachings clearly reflect that there is not a belief in a heaven and hell after life. There is a belief that we are able to create heaven or we are able to create hell in the world that we live in right now, that both of those are states of consciousness and that they are created by our thoughts, by our words, by our actions, and by whether or not we choose to live in harmony with divine mind. So, so one of the interesting things that probably has to be understood is we also don't see God in the traditional, in the, in, as that guy up on a cloud, you know, as the old guy, um, or the judgmental guy, or the guy at all. When we speak about God, we speak about a divine presence, that there is a field of divinity, there is a mind. We, we often reference the divine mind, that there is a consciousness that is holy and sacred, and that that consciousness, we emerge from that consciousness. We are not ever separate from it. Um, so like waves are never separate from the ocean, in unity we are never separate from God. There is, no, there is nothing that isn't God. We don't have 
an evil force, a Satan, uh, something out to convince us how to behave poorly. Those are things that we create through the way we choose to think, the way we choose to act, and by, by our own kind of lower ego self, as opposed to the state of consciousness that we can acquire if we are intentional, intentional about being at one with the holy. So people have free will to act as they choose, correct? Correct. Okay. So when somebody um, hurts someone else or kills someone else or uh, cheats in business on someone else, uh, where's, where's the force? I mean, are it's they... It's on them and not on Satan. I mean, it's really, ultimately, it comes down to, you know, we are making choices and living a certain way. Now, that said, um, you had started to talk earlier about our, our five principles, and you had asked about the, the first principle, which says that, that there is one presence and one power and that we believe it's good. And if you look to the second principle, the second principle says we are one with that power, and as a result, we are therefore good as well. There's, and so you can't say, in other words, you can't say um, this wave on the ocean is made of something other than the water that is the ocean. So if we emerge from the body of the holy, then at our very core, we are holy as well. And many things happen that affect that. So how I teach here uh, at Unity is I often will say to people, I have been blessed to be at 12 births. Three of those were for children of my own, and the rest were with friends or people who obviously I have a, a very close relationship with. So I have held in my arms 20 ba- or 12 babies within moments of coming out of the oven. And I have never looked at any single one of those children and said, oh my God, the world is in a big, this is a big problem. This is evil incarnate. You know, I've always looked at every child, always held every child and felt that I was holding a bit of heaven in my arms, that there was something, there's something about birth that is, is beyond words, some state of sacredness that is beyond words. So everyone, it's my belief, Everyone is born that way. And between then and the day someone kills another person or intentionally causes harm or whatever the, that act might be that we would like to label as evil, between the time of birth and the time that incident happens, there are many, many things that affect us. The way we're raised uh, by our parents, uh, the, the abuses we take from friends, the tragedies and traumas that, that we go through in life, through in life, and mental illness. And all of those things can cause us to make decisions about our actions that might be labeled evil. But we don't see them as being, um, being prompted, provoked, or in any way presented through us at the hands of a secondary evil source. Interesting. Rabbi Harold Kushner, whose name you know, uh, in his first book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, talks about, uh, to us rabbis at conferences, 
that when he was ordained, he made a deal with God. And he said, okay, God, I'm going to take care of you, and you're going to take care of me. And then his son died at the age of 14 from old age, from progeria. We have pictures of the son's bar mitzvah, and he looked like an old man. He really mm-hmm. looked like an old man. Stringy, long, white hair, etc., etc. So Harold Kushner lost his faith. And then he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he prayed on it, and he decided that it was the wrong kind of God he was believing in. That God is, as you say and I say, and most people that you and I play in the sandbox with say, you know, God is a good God. And um, God gives us, part of that goodness is giving us free will to act and believe as we choose. And God is the grant, not, I mean, the old vision of God, the grandfather who sits on the throne with a, crown on his head and rewards and punishes uh, as he chooses, that is not the God that we pray to. We pray to a God who is, is love and, and is with us. And so he came back into the rabbinate and he's, I believe, America's best rabbi. He just, uh, he's in his 80s. He's written 12 books. He just wrote a, uh, uh, probably his last one called Nine Essential Things I Learned About Life which I am bombarding my congregation with. And one of the things that he says is that God does not create the problem. God creates the strength for us to deal with the problem. I kind of like that because it gives you, Ariana and me, Mel, the freedom to deal with those, those, those problems that you mentioned. And God is on our side, and we feel God's presence uh, when we struggle, even, uh, and, and when we succeed. And even when we fail, there's always hope. There's always a next time. There's always an opportunity to, to deal with these issues again. So I agree with you 100%. Uh, I don't believe in a physical afterlife at all, uh, despite what many people who I love and love me tell me that energy never disappears. And so even after you die, your energy is still around. I don't know what that means. I'm a simple, well, I, I don't know what that means, but God is you know, not we don't, on the throne. We don't, Mel, we don't, um, in Unity, we, Unity's founders believed in reincarnation. They uh, really, and a lot of Unity followers believe that as well. That that we basically change vehicles. We leave one vehicle and we go to another. All and right, stop, 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 because that's going to take more time than thirty seconds that we have. So we're going to take a break and we're going to be reincarnated in thirty seconds and continue our <laughs> conversation. We'll be right back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. 
part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi everyone, Rabbi Mel, back with you with my guest and friend, Reverend Ariana Platten, who is the minister at the Unity of the Rockies here in Colorado Springs. We've been talking about principles and we've been talking about God and their first numero uno principle of the Unity Church is, and I quote, there is only one presence and one power in our lives and it is good. This presence is often called God. And number two, we are one with this presence. Therefore, we are inherently good. And of course, I, being who I am, am not content to just leave that go. So I asked about evil and why bad things happen in the world and and why kids get so afraid of of life that they kill themselves and uh, or adults for that matter. And I asked Ari if... Unity believes in a uh, heaven and hell, and she said no, but um, they do believe in reincarnation. Ari, the floor is yours. Well, yeah, and just to you know, just just to make sure we're we're like right on track with what what Unity more officially teaches. It's not that we don't believe in a heaven and hell. Uh, there is a statement in the Bible that says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And that for us is one of those defining statements that says we can create the kingdom of God right here. We don't have to leave our bodies. It's not something we have to transcend to. But we can create heaven or we can create hell, um, basically by how we think and how we live and what we choose to do. And when it, when it comes to what really happens on the other side, when we leave this mortal soil and and depart our bodies, you know, uh, because unity believes we are, first of all, that we are 
one with God. There is no separation. God is not something outside of ourselves, but it's something that that it's it's actually the core of who we are. And I the best metaphor I have is waves on the ocean. If you take the ocean away, there are no waves. There will never be any waves without the ocean. It's the same kind of concept with God. There is no there there is no us. If there is no God, we are one with God. And and so when we leave our physical form, we are, again, one with God in that same state available to reincarnate into another body. Or it's my personal belief, it's not a unity teaching, but my personal belief is we get to make a choice about what we want to do. My, um, my mom is Catholic, and she said to me one day, I, you have the right to believe whatever you want, but I just want to know one thing. When you die, where are you going? And I said, well, Mom, you know, do you really believe Gabriel's blowing his horn, St. Peter's throwing the gates back, and the roads are going to be paved with gold as you walk in? And she said, no. She said, I think that heaven is not ever having to ask why again, which, first of all, I thought was brilliant. My mom's a smart lady. And then I told her, I said, then, you know, we're going to the same place, Mom. The only difference is I'm probably going to leave again. (laughs) I'm probably going to go do this a couple more times. Maybe you will and maybe you won't. And I I really believe it's kind of like that. I I know that in the Hindu, Hindu faith and other faiths, that concept of reincarnation is still very tied also to, you know, karmic law and, and um, choices in your behavior and whether you have to go forward and re-earn your place. Uh, but unity doesn't teach it that way. It doesn't teach it tied to karma, only that we have the opportunity to leave one body and to come back and live again in another form. So you get other opportunities to learn the lessons of God. Correct. And to learn about... And we see ourselves very much as expressing God. That's a a big thing you'll hear in unity is, I am God expressing. So many religions have a holy trinity, a father, son, holy ghost, a mother, father, God, a, a maiden, mother, crone. There are a lot of different ways that that's said. Um, Unity's holy trinity is mind, idea, expression. So we believe there is a divine mind, a divine presence, a divine consciousness. Within that mind is a sacred idea. That sacred idea is the idea that is the Christ, that is the the ordained ability to be at one, and the the expression is Jesus who came forward from that divine idea to actually come into a body and take action on a physical plane. And so that's, that's really the work. If you're a member of unity, the real work is, will you be God expressing? Will you spend time in meditation and prayer, make connection to the divine mind and actually be guided by live through and live into that idea that, that, The hands you use, the eyes you see with, the heart that you put into the love you share are all expressions of the holy. That's that's not too far from some of the mysticism in the Talmud, which says, you know, you get many chances to hear the lesson, 
to learn the lessons that God wants you to learn. And when you die, if, if you're good, you go to heaven, whatever that means. And if you don't die, you could come back. But if you're a bad person, you may come back as a frog or a grasshopper or a stapler or uh, <laughs> something. Uh, and you, you will continue to exist until that stapler is stomped on by some big, strong guy. And then you get another chance. Now, I'm not sure that's what I believe. I believe it's all about legacy and how you are remembered. If they tell good stories about me when I die, then that's heaven. If they tell the truth, no, I'm sorry. If they tell bad stories about me, saying I was a, a terrible human being and I didn't care about anybody else, then that's hell. And I don't need, although I support others who believe in a physical place, I, because that's my job, to comfort them, not to judge them. So I, but that's not what I believe. Now, when someone dies, is there a special kind of um, funeral service? Are there, are there special rites, things that, that unity does that Christianity, Judaism, and Hindu don't do? Um, not, not to the degree that you would find in Judaism. I, I think that, you know, Mel, if I have not said this to you, I will say it now, that one of, one of the things that I most admire about Judaism is the rites and rituals around death. And I, I think there are many faith traditions in today's world that could learn a lot from the Jewish culture about how to do this well. Um, I think we, we don't, in general, we don't, especially here in the United States, we don't do death well. We don't have a way of knowing how long we're supposed to grieve or what grief looks like or how we integrate or when do we go to the wedding or do we not. And, you know, there's just a lot that we don't talk about. We really avoid death if we can. We avoid anything that feels like loss. We don't want to lose a job. We don't want to lose a parking place. You know, we That's just right. don't, don't talk about loss, don't deal with loss unless we're absolutely forced to. So unfortunately... When people are actually confronted by death, it can be a very, very, uh, a very traumatic experience. I think that what unity does well is unity does not do funerals and unity uh, does not really do memorials. Unity does a celebration of life. In other words, we, we are not there to say you lived so well and now you get to go to heaven. That's not our point. Uh, that's that's not what we believe. And we're also not there to say, oh, good, all you guys, you know, pay attention to the good job that was done here because we're the unlucky ones. We're still in hell, and, uh, and our brother or sister here has gone on to a better place. It's not that for us either. Our gathering around the loss of someone, around someone's, what we call it is transition. First of all, we don't say that person has died. We say that person has transitioned. That person has moved from the physical body to the etheric plane or to another, whatever that connection is with the holy, and then has the, has the opportunity to transition back into a body. But we celebrate this life, that all the good that, that has happened. We talked a little bit earlier about 
um, about suicide. And, and about a year ago, I had the opportunity to do a life celebration for a young man uh, who chose uh, to leave at his own hand at 14 years old. And one of the great challenges in writing that ceremony for me was finding the words to say to the community, which, which included many of the children that he had grown up with and parents and grandparents and teachers who were very close and, uh, you know, the, the, all of those people who really had watched this life, that even at 14, this life is worthy of celebration. This child accomplished a great deal. Just look at the number of people here. And you can see the great accomplishment that has come in that all of you have been touched enough by his very presence that you chose to be here today. So really, we celebrate what a person's life has meant to us, um, what they have, the fact that they were here was important and beautiful, and regardless of the circumstances that cause that person's trans- transition, the thing that we want to remember is all that was accomplished, all that was, fellow, um, all that was enjoyed. So not, so not so different than when you're saying now um, how people remember you affects how you will be beyond this life. Yes. It's, it's very much that, that the last thing that we do together is to remind each other of the good that this person brought into our lives so that as we're remembering, we remember that good, that what, what lives on in our heart, what keeps that person's spirit alive is our good memories, our positive memories. So, so in effect, not only does he or she transition to somewhere else, some other dimension, but we who are there to honor him also transition because yesterday we could see him and feel him and touch him and kiss him and hold him and hug him. And today our love for him has to be transitioned and shown in different kinds of ways. Absolutely. I always say at funerals that if you would remember, if you would truly mourn him and honor him, then take a piece of him home with you from the cemetery, add that peace, whatever it is, to your life, and he will be truly remembered. Okay. Right. Live into what you admired. We'll be back, and um, we'll see you soon. We'll be back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back and part of you wants to go forward. 
That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. I'm back. This is Rabbi Mel Glazer, and I'm here with my good friend and co-conspirator in God's world, Reverend Ari Platten, who is the minister at Unity of the Rockies. And we were just talking about what happens, what do we believe about what happens in the afterlife? And um, since nobody knows, what I like to teach Ari is that since Nobody knows everybody's right. Uh, I, don't, I don't judge people. That's not my job. As I said before, my job is to comfort people. So uh, I, I love the story of, of somebody who was dying, and he was in a hospice, and his whole family was standing around him, and his wife, he was in his 90s, and a, a wonderful guy, member of the congregation, and his wife was yelling at him, don't die, Sai. Sai, stay here. Sai, I need you. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Well, of course, nobody knows what to say because she's hysterical. Finally, Sai takes his last breath. And she, to the surprise of every single person in that room, there were about 15 of us, starts beating on his chest. I guess she'd been watching too much television lately. She was trying to restart his heart. She said, Sai, you can't go. You can't. You just, you have to stay here. So I'm, I'm as shocked as everybody else, and I say to myself, okay, Rabbi, you're the man. you got to say something rabbinic that's going to make her feel a little bit better that her husband that she was married to for 70 years uh, had just died. So I... Gently lifted her up, and I said, it's going to be okay. I hugged her. I said, it's going to be okay because Sai's going to go to heaven, and he's going to be with his parents. And she looks at me, and I can't even describe the look on her face. She says, Rabbi, 
Cy hated his parents. Everybody wow. breaks out in hysterical laughter. <laughs> the bad thing was that what I said. The good thing was that I broke the tension and people could sort of move forward, begin to move forward. Because everybody else in the room, the kids and the grandchildren, knew that Cy was about to go. And, and I didn't know where he was going, and she didn't know where he was going. Uh, and God knew where he was going, but God doesn't talk about these things to us. So we just have to believe. I believe that faith means believing in something before all the facts are in. Or as you said better, uh, not having to ask why anymore. Or your mother said it. My mom. Yeah, God bless her. Right. So do you have any, any um, for example, in the Jewish tradition, you know we have a seven-day mourning period called Shiva where people come and comfort the mourner and we... Uh, believe we Jews believe in comforting the mortar by giving them food to eat because God forbid they don't eat from you know so we try to strengthen them and we visit them and I when I'm there I try to tell stories and get others to tell stories of the size who have just died which is exactly what I do at uh, funerals, uh, which probably look a whole lot like your celebration of life. I don't do eulogies anymore because a, a revered teacher of mine in rabbinical school said boys, because 43 years ago it was only boys. He said, boys, there are two kinds of people that come to funerals. Half the people there knew him, so you don't have to repeat all the life details. And the other half don't know him. So you don't have to repeat their de his details. He'll ask somebody that knew him. What I do is invite two or three or four members of the family to get up and tell stories. And that brings laughter, and it brings tears, and it brings a sense that, that there's a presence here in the cemetery beyond me and you who are there attending the service. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say, uh, not as well as I'd like to, is that there isn't a whole lot of difference. There is not a whole lot of difference between your celebration of life and my funeral because uh, we both believe that the value of, of a human being is, in fact, in great part how he or she is remembered after they die. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think, um, I think, first of all, we do something very similar. We invite people also to share their stories. I think, I think the other thing that I would touch on that is, in my mind, incredibly important at a memorial is not, not only that we celebrate life, but that we touch on the subject of forgiveness. That there, uh, you know, there are, Things about everyone's life that didn't go quite the way they were planned, and and all of us, in one way or another, um, leave a little bit of a mess. There's, right. you know, there are very few people who haven't left some loose end that needs to be tied up. And one of the things that I I like to remind people of 
in the time of transition is, first of all, that we're all human and that each of us can probably identify in our own mind something we wish had gone differently, something we haven't found a way to repair, um, something that we've had to learn to just live with, some choice that we've made, and that sigh or whoever that person is, I'm certain will have left with something that the great hope in that is that whatever that something is that was so important will be part of the lesson of the next lifetime, that that motivates the next lifetime and gives purpose to the next lifetime, that we continue to grow and learn together. And that forgiveness is not necessarily saying that what happened with that person is right. It's saying that I can acknowledge that person as human and I am willing to release them to go on to their own lessons and release for myself any burden I need to carry as they go forward. And, you know, this was, I was speaking earlier about the, the memorial for the young man um, who died of suicide last year. Forgiveness was a very big topic in sure that particular is. service because there's a need to forgive what we don't know. To forgive that this person chose to leave and didn't tell us why. That we it, have it to talk about it. We to have to be find peace with that. Nobody, nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to feel like they're protecting their family. And a lot of people die when the room is empty, when the hospital or hospice room is empty, because they don't want to. You know, they, they don't want to hurt anybody. And the family doesn't want to talk about it to the one who's dying because they don't want to hurt anybody. And so we're left with a sort of a nothingness after somebody dies because we haven't talked about it. We haven't wrapped it up. We haven't cleaned up relationships. You're absolutely right. I spend most of my counseling talking about forgiveness. And I will send people back to the cemetery and tell them exactly what to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we don't uh, we don't like cremations because there's no place to go unless you bury the ashes in the cemetery, which in our tradition can't you cannot do that. But I send a lot of people back to the cemetery, and I say you have this is what you have to say. One, I forgive you, and be specific for what. Uh, Two, I apologize to you and be specific for what. Three, uh, we had a wonderful time when we be specific about the things that you shared together. And fourth and finally is I love you. The problem is sometimes they didn't love them. You know, to, to bury a loved one, a less than loved one, is harder, much harder than it is to bury a loved one because you you have to grieve the not loving part. You have to grieve right. that before you can grieve their death. A lot of people can't pull it off. I had a guy whose mother who came to me once and said, you have to help me forgive my mother. I said, when did she die? He said, 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Because time doesn't do anything. Time just passes. Doesn't help, does it? It's nothing. It's just, it's, it's neutral. It just passes. So 
I said, where's she buried? He said, in um, Brooklyn, which is covered with Jewish cemeteries, Staten Island. And so, and we lived in a small town in uh, Pennsylvania, not too far away. And I said, then you must go there. And I told him those four things to say. And uh, I said, and when you have your daughter drive you to the cemetery, tell her to go away. You don't want anybody with you. It has to be a solitary experience between you and your mother because otherwise you're going to carry her weight, the weight of that relationship around with you forever the rest of your life. So, and call and come back and see me when you're done. So he goes, he did it. He looked at me like I had lost it totally, but he did it. And he came back a few weeks later and he said to me, Rabbi, you're a genius. I said, thank you. Go tell the president of the congregation because <laughs> he needs to hear it more than I do. So why am I a genius? He said, I did exactly what you said to do, and it happened. And now I feel so much better and so much lighter and so much so much everything, so much better that, that, that and you did it, and you helped me. To forgive her. So I asked him, how, were, how long were you there at the cemetery? And he said, four hours. Wow. Yes, and he said it felt like 10 minutes. I couldn't cry anymore. So I called my daughter on the cell phone. She came and she got me. But that's what you have to do. You can't, like, I once read, forgiveness is not for wussies. It's hard yeah. work. So, um, so be it. So I think we've come, Ariana, to the end of our program. And I want to thank you again for coming and, and being my guest. If anybody wants to contact uh, Ariana, you go on your on your. Website to www.unityrockies.org. And if you want to contact me, you go to griefok.com. And next week, my guest will be Judy Wright, who calls herself anti-artichoke. She's going to talk and teach us all about pet loss, which is now becoming a huge, huge topic in death and dying so thank you ariana i appreciate it i love you and we will talk soon thank you again for joining rabbi mel glazer for from morning to morning please tune in again next thursday at 8 p.m eastern time and 5 p.m pacific time on the voice america empowerment channel we're wishing you strength and hope in the next week 